Scott wrote that not knowing what else to do, thinking that he was about to meet death, he reached into his luggage to pull out a weapon. But it was not a weapon that he knew was a weapon at the moment. He pulled out a violin, a violin that he carried with him always. He closed his eyes and began singing a a powerful song in the native's language. He thought, if I'm going to die, I want to die glorifying God in my last few moments. And the song that he played was today's hymn. All hail the power of Jesus' name. He sang through one verse and then another verse. And when he finally reached that stanza, let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, he realized something. I'm still alive. And it's very quiet. So out of curiosity, he opened up his eyes. And to his surprise, every spear had been lowered. And many of those warriors were weeping. E.P. Scott spent the remaining years of his life preaching and ministering God's love and redemption to these people. God in his providence used a very beautiful hymn as a means of introducing the gospel to a group of needy warriors. I recently heard a story about an elderly woman who was nearing death. Her family was gathered around her bed and they heard her whispering, bring, bring. They immediately thought she was thirsty and brought her some water. She just shook her head and simply said, bring, bring. One of the family members remembered seeing her shout and wave a handkerchief in her younger years and they brought that to her. She still shook her head and said, bring, bring. Still not knowing what she wanted, they brought her Bible to her and laid it on her bed. And the old woman still shook her head and said, bring, bring. Exasperated, they looked at her and asked, what is it you want us to bring? And with her last bit of strength, she raised herself up in the bed, raised her hands with her dying breath, saying, Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. This hymn is often called the national anthem of Christendom. It first appeared in print November 1779 in an issue of the Gospel Magazine, which was edited by Augustus Toplady, who wrote the song, Rock of Ages. One rock, I think, well-deserved. So long as there are Christians on earth, it will continue to be sung. And after that, in heaven. The writer of the hymn was Edward Perrinet. He was born in Sundridge, Kent, England, 1726. His father was a pastor of the State Church of England who had strong ties and sympathy to the new evangelical movement that was being spearheaded by the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield. Finally, uh, Edward became a minister of the Anglican Church. But from the very beginning, he was critical of its ways. And finally, he broke with the church and aligned himself up with the Wesleys. And it was during a time when he came to join them. Folks, this isn't a recruiting poster idea. He comes and joins the Wesleys, and it was under one of the times of their worst persecution. John Wesley actually recorded a notation in his diary. From Rockdale, we went to Bolton and soon found that the Rockdale Lions 
were lambs in comparison with those of Bolton. Edward Perronet was thrown down, rolled in the mud and mire, stones were hurled, and windows broken. Another in- interesting moment in the work of Perronet with the Wesleys, he was completely not ready when John Wesley announced to the crowd that Aaronette would be preaching the next service that evening. Perronet was 18 years younger than Wesley and had absolutely refused to ever preach in the presence of John Wesley. And now he's got to. And he doesn't want to cause a public disagreement. So that evening when he came, he announced that he hadn't actually prepared or consented to preach. And then he said these words. How about these were bold words? However, I shall deliver the greatest sermon that has ever been preached on earth. After which he read the Sermon on the Mount and sat down without any comment. Well, eventually, Piranette's strong-mindedness and free spirit caused a break with the Wesleys, and he spent the rest of his ministry and life as a pastor of an independent church in Canterbury, England. His last words clearly show the heart of this man of God. Shortly before he died, he declared, Glory to God in the height of his divinity. Glory to God in the depth of his humanity. Glory to God in his all-sufficiency. Into his hands, I commend my spirit. He was a man used by God to write a powerful hymn of praise. He actually wrote several hymns. This is the only one that still exists. God has used men like Perinet throughout the ages to speak to his people and challenge them and encourage them. Today, we're going to take a look at a text written by the Apostle John. And in the passage of Scripture, and this is only one, this, this is one particular hymn that not just one passage of Scripture inspired. He will actually reference the passage that we looked at last week with the, the elders throwing their crowns before Jesus, he at least is nodding his head to the Philippians pastor passage that Natalie read. And then he comes to the passage where Jesus is actually said to be wearing a diadem that acknowledged Jesus Christ as King of Kings. Revelation 19, 11-16, would you stand? An amazing, awesome passage as we look at what's being said. John wrote, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Friends, this is our blessed hope. This is what gives us courage to press on in times of struggle and pain. This is what causes us to not lose faith as long as we remember the promise of the Lord. As bad as the world may get, this is our hope. One day, Jesus is going to return. And he's going to bring his kingdom to a fullness. He will not be the little baby born in the manger. He will not be Jesus mild and and just calm. He will be coming back as the conquering king. And the knowledge of that brings us encouragement. So we're going to look at a passage of scripture. and We're going to take a look at the ways this passage tells us Jesus is returning. And the very first thing, the very first thing, he will return in victory. He is going to come back victorious. Not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, King of kings, Lord of lords. How do we know that the emphasis is on victory? By John's description, his opening statement of seeing a white horse. This was the meaning of John's vision of Christ on the white horse. It was common. When a king returned from battle victorious, he would be riding a white stallion. So even before the announcements were made, all across his kingdom, people would know we won the battle. Jesus' return, returning to earth on a steed fitting a king. But I want you to notice, he's coming back victorious king on his white stallion, and the battle hasn't been waged yet. Jesus is already being shown as conqueror. This is about what this is all about. John's vision was that Jesus is pronounced king even before the battle takes place. He wins even before anything is done but I want you to know something. And, and ladies, thank you for that song. Once again, you couldn't have picked a more appropriate song. The Lord was leading in that. We're told Jesus is wearing a robe dipped in blood. Now some folks, looking at some of the words in this text, go back to Isaiah where a similar text talks about the, the conqueror coming back in robes dipped in his enemy's blood. And some people say that's what it means. But just as I said, notice the battle has not yet been waged. He has not yet treaded in the wine press. Now it's possible that the robe is a foreshadow of the victory to come. It's possible that in Revelation, the chronology doesn't matter. And sometimes it does seem that way in Revelation. But I side with those who believe that the blood that Jesus' robe is dipped in is his own. Pointing to the victory that was already accomplished at Calvary. When he gave himself for our sins. The blood certainly does have power. And when you look at Revelation as a whole, John points to the, the, the king 
the line of the tribe of Jesus. Do you remember that passage? When, when everyone is wailing because no one is worthy of opening the, score, the scrolls and suddenly we're being told about the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it, John says, I looked. And what he saw was a lamb freshly slain. And so every time John mentions blood in this text when it's in relation to Jesus, I think he's going back to the idea Christ has won through His act of sacrifice. You see, He overcame all the forces of evil by shedding His own blood. Added to that, we're told the sword, the the only weapon that Jesus brings is coming out of His mouth. We'll look at that again in just a moment. Christ rises to victory here because He's already won the war. He's already paid the price. He's already the victor. And folks, I want you to hold on for this as long as you can in this life. This is the promise of victory that is already real for all of those in Jesus Christ. There is already victory. Now I know it's hard to see that sometimes. There are battles being fought every day. What do you mean the victory is won? Well, The largest single invasion of all time was an operation. Just under 200,000 Allied Naval and Merchant Navy personnel delivered over 130,000 troops along a stretch of the coast of Normandy. They, in turn, were supported by 12,000 aircraft flying 14,000 missions. These invaders' goal was to get past the well-entrenched German army It was 250,000 strong. We know June 6, 1944, forever in history books as D-Day. And it was a pivotal moment in the war. This was the battle that ultimately assured the Nazis' defeat. Hitler's plan, his goal, his confidence was shattered at D-Day. When Christ died on the cross, that was our D-Day. Now there are going to be skirmishes, there will be spiritual battles still being fought. But when on the cross Jesus Christ exclaimed, it is finished, and when he walked out of that tomb, the war was won. The war was won. And just to make sure we understand this victorious coming one on the white horse, even the names given Christ in this text point to the promise of victory we can celebrate. He is, first of all, called faithful and true. In chapter 3, verse 14 in Revelation, to the letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness. In other words, everything I've said about you, you can trust is true. Now he is declared to be the faithful and witness judge who in justice will wage war and destroy all of the enemies of God. Then we're told he has a name no one knows. 
Now, someone suggested right after that, he says he's the Word of God, so that's a name no one knows. No one knows that name. Now, why does somebody have a name no one knows? Well, first of all, from ancient times even to today, people have understood there is power in your name. Now, in the ancient world, particularly those who tried to practice the black magical arts, thought, if I know somebody's name, I can curse them and defeat them. In our day, we don't quite look at it this way. But I can almost guarantee you, if you are in Walmart on Black Friday and you hear your name called out, what are you going to do? You're going to look, aren't you? You're going to look. And folks, I'm not the only Danny on the face of this earth. And there have been many times I've heard my name ready to... And it wasn't me. Names still have power. Think about every time someone... Calls you by the wrong name. Names have power, but I think there's more. No one knows the name. Not the enemies who would try to use it. But no one knows this particular name. And I think the Word of God is letting us know something we need to know. Just about the time you think you've got it all figured out, You've grown as much as you know everything there is to know in the Bible about the Lord. We remember we don't know His name. And it doesn't matter how much knowledge we believe we have. Folks, we will never completely, I think even in glory, we will never completely understand the full and powerful glory of our Lord. Then we're told he's the word of God. Now it's interesting. John, John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the word. This is the only place in the entire New Testament, therefore in the, in the entire world, uh, word of God, the only place where that full title is used for Jesus, the word of God. He's making it absolutely clear here. The word lets us know because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. We call the Bible the Word, rightfully so. It is the Word from God. But Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything written in that Word. When the disciples said, just show us the Father, we'll be happy. He said, if you see me, you sing the Father. The Word of God. And then King of kings and Lord of lords. And I want you to know in the ancient world, there were other rulers who used those kind of phrases. But on the great and terrible day of the Lord, when it is said of God, every king, every ruler on earth will know, they're not really. I love the, the poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, Ozymandias, about a, a scribe who comes across this remainder of a statue in the, wilder, in the desert and all that's left are trunks and a little bit of a head on the side, but it, my name is Ozymandias. And he says, bow down and be terrified. And there's nothing left. Jesus is the Christ. He is already triumphant. And right now, with everything growing on in our world, with all of the evil, all of the inhumanity, all of the stuff that we see that just tears our hearts apart, we need to remember 
Christ is victorious. And one day evil will be dealt with by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He comes back in victory. Well, he also will return in power. He will also return in power. And again, the images flow out of this text in a beautiful way. This power is shown. The images of his powerful are wonderful to consider. If you just let yourself think of it. Don't. I purposely chose an artistic work of Christ returning with a glowing so we couldn't see his face. Don't try to look at this as a mental image that makes sense. He has fiery eyes. Now that just doesn't mean he's angry. My mama had a look that we all knew was the look. And when she gave it, particularly if she gave it while calling you all three names of importance, you were in big trouble. It's not talking about that. Fiery eyes. It's also talked about him in the first chapter of Revelation. And I believe what it means, nothing is going to escape his burning glaze. This king, nothing can be hidden from him. He sees everything. And there's one aspect of that that's kind of intimidating, isn't it? Jesus sees everything we do. That can be scary. But it is also powerfully encouraging. Because he sees everything we do, and guess what? He loves us anyway. With fiery eyes, he's going to understand He's going to be wearing many crowns. That many is very obscure. We have no idea how many crowns he has. And the crown that is being talked about here, translated crown in the NIV, some of you will have a translation that actually uses the word diadem. And it is the word diadem. There were different kinds of crowns mentioned in the Bible. It was a crown of victory, like would be given at the Olympic Games, laurel wreath around the head. This was the crown of a king. Only it's not just one. It's many. And the use of the idea he is wearing many crowns means he has a right. Now there's a contrast. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 3, the dragon is said to wear seven crowns. In the 13th chapter, verse 1, the king and the beast is said to wear Ten crowns. The fact that Jesus is wearing many. So that those are just posers. They don't have the power that they're proclaiming to have. Many crowns. And then the only weapon that will be used by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring judgment and righteousness in this world coming out of his mouth, it is the word of his mouth. He has armies with him. And we're not sure who those armies are. They may be as the angels. Remember Jude talks about thousands upon thousands of angels will come with him. Some believe because they are dressed in white that they must be the saints. There's a possibility it will be composed of angels and those saints who have died in the Lord. But regardless of who they are, listen to what Paige Patterson said, though they are called armies, there is no mention of weapons, and neither here nor elsewhere are they said to take military action. 
The victory over evil is won by their leader alone. They don't do a thing. They're there to accompany him. A, a show of power. I'm not sure exactly why they're there other than they are the triumphant people coming with the triumphant Lord. But he's the one who wins. Just by the word of his mouth. The truth is clear for us if we'll hear it. Christ's might alone is the key to victory. It's the key to victory. Now, we spent a lot of months in the book of Galatians. And throughout Galatians, we kept hearing this thing, didn't we? Victory is in Jesus Christ and His presence. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I'm alive, but the life I'm living is not me. It's Christ living in me. The theme is carried here. He did not need an army for victory. Because his word was enough. There's a hint about this found in the book of John. In John chapter 12 verses 47 through 49. Listen what Jesus said. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me to what to say and how to say it. So Jesus is saying, my word will act as the judge. I'm coming, I'm bringing it, and all those who've rejected me will have to deal with that. We can rest in this truth. The cause of Christ will be triumphant. The world, the flesh, and the devil have already been dealt the decisive blow. So we, yes, we need to suit up in the full armor of God. We've got to be ready for battles that will be waged. Some of those battles we'll lose. Some of the times we'll fail. But we know that in the end, Christ is victorious. Because Christ has the power needed to win the battle. So we can rejoice in the authority of Christ to defeat evil. All evil. I've chosen to use the word authority because in the word of God, we need to understand something. There are two concepts of power in the word of God. One is might. One is strength. The strength to get the job done. The other is authority. You have the right to get the job done. As king of kings and lord of lords, he has the right and the power to bring the victory. Darkness cannot ever defeat the light of Christ. And that gives us hope. No matter what befalls us, we have a cause of joy. Even when things don't go the way we want, even when answers to prayer don't fit what we wanted, and even though there will be times when it seems that the enemy is winning, Christ is victorious and has the authority. 
In our eyes, we may see the light of Christ dimming. But the light will not be conquered. And the final way Christ returns, He will return acknowledged by all. Acknowledged by all. Again, how do I know it? Well, let's take a look at what the text is saying. There will be no doubt about who he is. There will be no doubt who this one on the white throne, or on the white horse is. Why? Because he has the name for all to see, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now here, the imagery is debated. Some believe that when John says he had the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his robe, on his thigh, that what was meant was the name is on the robe which covers his thigh. Others say, no, let's just take it for what it says. It's inscribed on his robe and on his thigh. And both groups making those arguments have their reasons for the arguments. But still, let's not let the argument cause us to lose what is said. The importance is the inscription. King of kings, Lord of lords, so when he returns, all will see and know who this conquering king is. When he begins his eternal reign... No one can stand against him. When he returns, no one will be able to deny who he is. When he returns, nobody can rightfully say this is not fair. When he judges. When he returns. Every excuse that has ever been given to deny the call of Christ, to deny the purpose of God, will fail. Because what this tells us, Christ and his cause will be upheld for all to see. Again, from the song. There was an image in the song that the lady sang again. There are myriad voices, a lot of people out there, saying that our faith is meaningless, that the blood is nothing. Let's face it whether we like the term or not, we are fools for Jesus in this world. Because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. And there are those who will say, there is nothing to your faith. You have abandoned reason. You are fools. And they reject Him. They reject the truth of Christ. They reject His gospel. They reject God. They're not saying out there in the world God is dead. They're saying God never existed. And by saying it, they think, that finishes that. We won the argument. Leave us alone. But they will one day understand. Their rejection finishes nothing. David McFadden, in a sermon, The Psalm of King of Kings, tells a great story about Horace Greeley. 
you may vaguely remember that name if you're a student of American history. He was a famous newspaper editor. One day he's walking down the street and a man walks up to him and says, Mr. Greeley, I have stopped your paper. Have you? That's too bad. Went on his way. The next morning, Mr. Greeley met the same man and he came up to him and said, I thought you stopped the Tribune. I did. Then there must be some mistake. For I just came from the office. And the presses were running. The clerks were as busy as ever. The compositors were hard at work. All the business was going on as yesterday and the day before. And rather meekly, this man said, Oh, I didn't mean I stopped the entire newspaper. I meant that I'd stop my copy of it because I didn't like your editorials. Fathom goes on to say, in the same way individuals who rebel against God are like the man who proudly announced to Horace Greeley that he stopped his newspaper. They think if they reject God's rule in their life, that they will stop God's rule in the earth, but that's not so. Whether a person rebels against God's rule in his life or submits to God's rule in his life, God is going to do what he has declared. God has declared that one day, despite mankind's rebellion, Jesus will reign upon earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. The 16th chapter, John, Jesus warns his disciples that bad times are coming, that they're going to be under pressure, that they're going to suffer for the cause of Christ. Then he offered them a word of encouragement that is anchored in the truth of our text. Jesus knew that victory waited for him and God's people. So he told his disciples, right after them telling them, you're going to have difficulty. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. It is that promise that allowed the Apostle Paul to write in Romans 8. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's what allowed him to write that great Christ hymn that Natalie shared with the kids. Every tongue confess. Every, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will acknowledge who He is. And on that great and terrible day of the Lord, as it is sometimes referred to in Scripture, those who have rejected Him, when they declare Jesus is Lord, they will be uttering a message of total surrender and defeat. We were wrong. For those in this room who know Christ, it will be a shout of glory when we, when we see that name and we realize that victory is finally complete in here, it will be a day of great rejoicing. used to have a friend years ago when I was in college. She was a believer. She never wanted to talk about the book of Revelation or the end of time because it scared her. 
I tried to share with her this truth. We can look forward to the day we join all heaven in the everlasting song that Jesus is Lord. I love Perinette's line, we will join the everlasting song. When we, with the recognition of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, our experience with the kingdom of heaven will finally be made complete. If He comes in our lifetime, or if He comes after we go to be with Him in heaven, that day will indicate salvation is full, complete, total, and we will join the community of faith that stretches back for thousands of years. Glorifying the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our journey here on earth will be through. But then we're told we get to walk in a new heavens and a new earth forever in the presence of our King. Folks, I know there's so much that the world does that causes us to pull back and wonder and fear. We need to hear the message of this song, the message of the scripture. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let's, let's not wait till that day. Let's glorify Him. Let's, let's let everyone we know know that we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us rejoice that Jesus Christ is coming again. Now, I believe it will be in my lifetime. And I say that with the recognition, so has every generation of Christians. Jesus said that he didn't even... Did you catch that in our responsive reading? Jesus said, I don't know. I had a friend who said, well, he only said we wouldn't know the day he didn't, or hour he didn't say we wouldn't know the year. The Son doesn't know, so we won't. And so we're to watch and be ready. Because it's very possible we'll go to be with Him long before He comes back. But He is coming in victory. He is coming in power. And He is coming in a way that fully and finally every being will finally acknowledge who He is. To the glory of our Lord, our God, our Christ has already won. Please don't let yourself lose sight of that truth.